I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, host of the podcast, Mating Matters. I believe nearly every human behavior is motivated by a desire for love. I love the romantic endings. I believe in happy endings. Sex. Sometimes find myself looking for reasons to have sex. Or to hedge your reproductive odds. I've always been very active. In Mating Matters, we explore how our ancient brains are interacting with the modern world. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. I'm Craig, and this is Politicon. How the heck are we going to get along? The very first episode, the inaugural podcast of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? That was one of the longest introduction musical pieces I've ever heard. Um, but I didn't want to talk over it. It was a national anthem. I didn't want to disrespect it and speak right over it. So um, we're glad you're listening uh, in with us. We're glad you're here with us if you're in the audience. We um, have a great audience here in Los Angeles today, um, and we have some incredible panelists. I want to tell you real quickly before we get before we get going with the show, uh, You know, one of the reasons that how, you, how the heck are we going to get along gets started as a podcast in the first place, Politicon. Uh, is a national convention that has been going on for five years now, started um, in 2015 and quickly blew up into becoming one of the um, the premier places for politicians, entertainers, influencers to come together and uh, and discuss politics and disagree and shake hands at the end and sort of figure out how to get along and work together. Um, Politicon has been um, really kind of a big influence, I think, in, in the political landscape in the last five years. And How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along is the name of probably the most popular of the panels um, uh ongoing panels that happens every single year at Politicon, one of the ones that people are most uh, engaged with and excited to participate in. And so Politicon, um, in in an effort to, to kind of bring Politicon to the world outside of just the convention, has started um, a, a line of podcasts, so to speak. And this is the very first one. So we're really excited about the opportunity to do that. Um, we're going to talk over the next, over the coming weeks, as episodes go, we're going to have the opportunity to talk to comedians, politicians, thought leaders, YouTubers, Instagram influencers, probably. Although I don't think any of us are Instagram influencers necessarily today on the panel. The Lord knows no one what. No one, no one looks at my Instagram. That's for sure. Um, but but the goal here is to kind of get people from all. All areas on the spectrum. We aren't calling it bipartisan. We're calling it all partisan people from all different angles and, and corners of the political spectrum to kind of look um, at at the disagreements that we have. And sometimes we found during these panels at Politicon that we've dis- discovered that uh, we find places that we agree when we didn't really realize. When we start listening, um, we realize that we agree on a little bit more than we uh, than we thought we did in the first place. No telling whether that'll happen here or not. But we're going to give it a shot. Um, And we're excited today because we're joined by some really, really great influencers who've definitely got followings in their respective fields. Lauren Chen from Blaze TV is here. So uh, we're excited to have her. 
John Iderola, the host of uh, a Young Turks show. Um, Young Turks obviously being, you know, really big, just as big as Blaze TV on the other end of the spectrum. He's the host of the Damage Report um, on the Young Turks. And then Matthew Sheffield is the founder of Newsbusters. He's a writer, technologist, producer, and he's the host of his own podcast, uh, The Theory of Change. Matthew Sheffield is here. Before we get going, and, we, and, and I think what's kind of cool about this, as, as you can hear, we have a live audience, like I said, I think I mentioned it before, um, but that's what makes it very unique. People from the audience have submitted questions, and we're going to go through some of those, and people in the audience who are here with us today are going to have an opportunity to uh, participate in the discussion. Also, if you're listening, you also have an opportunity to participate in the discussion. You can submit questions. You can be a part of our studio audience if you'd like to. Politicon, um, the Politicon website, you can sign up and get more information about that. But before we get into those audience questions, I want to just start with the big news of the past week. Um, you know, we started planning this uh, this episode, not having any idea what would happen on Super Tuesday. I think a lot of people had predictions. Um, and then quite a few predictions were possibly blown up last night. Um, Lauren, what were your thoughts on the results of Super Tuesday as you looked from, from your side of the aisle over to what the Democrats were doing? What what came to your mind? I think like a lot of people, I was very surprised to see Biden doing so well. I did not expect that. But I mean, I don't mean to have my tinfoil hat on here, but seeing that Elizabeth Warren is still in the race, I can't help but think that the only reason she's there is to split the progressive vote to ensure that Bernie Sanders does not get the nomination. Um of course, it's hilarious to see Mike Bloomberg's campaign crash and burn. If I ever feel like I've wasted money on something needless, I'll just think to his presidential <laughs> campaign, feel a lot more fis fiscally responsible right. in comparison. Um, but I mean, I I previously had been pretty sure that the nominee was going to be Bernie Sanders. I'm having to readjust that now. I think he's got very strong base and very, very um, passionate supporters. But I, I think the fact that, you know, Buttigieg and Klobuchar are now gone, Warren's still here, I just, it seems calculated to me. It seems like there is an effort to ensure that he doesn't get the support or at least the, the total votes that he otherwise might. Do you think that's a tinfoil hat type theory, Matthew? I mean, do you think that I hadn't necessarily thought of that, that perhaps Elizabeth Warren is still in the race to help Joe Biden? Or do you think that it works? Do you think that's the way these primaries work? Is that conspiracy theory valid, perhaps? Um, well, I think it's uh, very early to decide whether that would be true or not. I mean, if you uh, out of the news today, there were several stories talking about how the people in the Warren and the Sanders camps have been talking about it. maybe, you know, we got to come together. Um, so, I, I mean, ultimately, it was a contest between Warren and Sanders. She thought that she was more electable. She could unify the party more. But that just didn't happen. And so, you know, whether she endorses Sanders or not, I, I think she's going to be bowing out pretty soon. Do you think she'll endorse Sanders when she if when and if she does bow out, John? Uh, I can't say with any degree of confidence who exactly Elizabeth Warren is or what her position is right now. I still, if I had to bet, if I had to put money down, I would say that, yes, that's probably pretty likely. But we do have to factor in that she is she wants to be relevant going forward. She probably rightfully believes that a lot of that side of the spectrum has a lot of bad feelings towards her and probably will for a very long time. And so if she thinks that Biden is going to be the nominee, and last night certainly gave us a few reasons to think that that could at least be the case, um, buttress probably by 
maybe a half billion dollars from Mike Bloomberg soon, um, which helps, um, then she might line up with him. I think that it would be a betrayal of who she's been in elected office, certainly who she was prior to elected office. And I don't think that it's a guarantee. I know some people you know, on my side think that there's no chance she'll support Bernie Sanders, but uh, I would bet that she still will, but I would not bet a lot. You seem, would it be right to say that you are resigned that Bernie, that Joe Biden would be the nominee? I mean, that seemed to be, that seemed to be, that, that wasn't necessarily the, the, the response I thought I'd get from you. Um, no, 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 not resigned at all. But I think that the, the odds are much higher than they were a week ago. I think that a lot of people, a lot of progressives probably experienced some whiplash last night. And I think, honestly, that is sort of our fault. Because last week, things were looking very good for Bernie Sanders. He had won, you know, the popular vote in the first three contests. He was up big in uh, not only national polls, but also the big states, Texas and California. And uh, I think that we allowed ourselves to feel like, oh, yeah, you know this thing we're doing where we're going to take down the political and economic elite that has backed the Democratic Party for literally decades? We got it. It's going to be easy. And I think we're being reminded, oh, no, wait, they are going to fight back, sometimes in very overt and, you know, purely political ways, sometimes in really underhanded ways. Why, why did you, I mean, what, do you agree with that, Lauren? Do you, I would, I kind of look at the Bernie movement and the enthusiasm that Bernie has had behind him as a mirror in some ways to the enthusiasm that Trump had behind him. Trump was able to keep that enthusiasm going throughout 2016. Bernie, whether he, he may have kept the enthusiasm going, but it doesn't look like that enthusiasm translated into people showing up necessarily yesterday. Do you, is there, is there a parallel at all? I think there is. If you look at both Bernie's campaign and Trump's campaign, I mean, policies aside, because obviously very different, but you have sort of the populist rhetoric and they are anti-establishment. I mean, Bernie Sanders, he's, you know, he's an independent. It makes perfect sense to me why the DNC would not want someone who's technically not even in their party to win their nomination. It doesn't mean that, you know, any type of underhanded technique they might try to subvert that is okay or acceptable. I don't think it is, but I think it, it makes sense to me. And if we, we even look at what was going on with the Trump, there was there was concerted efforts to try withhold the nomination throughout from never Trumpers. Uh, I think Regardless of how the votes were going to be going, whether for Biden or Bernie, even if Bernie was coming on top with delegates, I, I'm not certain that the DNC would have just been like, OK, here you go and have it. I think there would have they would have tried to do something to ensure that he didn't have it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there there are some functional parallels for sure. Um, but the, the reason why it's harder for Bernie is that. On the Republican side of the aisle, there's this massive, massive media complex that like talk radio, like, um, all, you know, all these um, webs, websites and whatnot that literally have spent decades telling Republican voters the Republican Party is selling you out. They're evil. They don't don't trust them. Um, they're liars. Um, like that's the message that you would get even before Trump came along. When you listen to, you know, Mark Levin or you listen to Rush Limbaugh or, you know, guys like that, they, they, they've literally so they conditioned Republican voters to accept a hostile takeover from outside. Whereas on the Democratic side of the aisle, the independent media that's not part of the establishment, well, it's basically most of it's right here on the stage here. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, like if you if you tune into CNN or MSNBC, like literally Nancy Pelosi will is a is a goddess like she is 
cannot be questioned. Like, the Democrats totally screwed up the way they did impeachment, but you never heard that discussed um, on left-wing, you know, left-wing so-called TV. Um, MSNBC, CNN, they weren't talking about it. And so there's just this infrastructure that makes it a lot harder for for Bernie to come in and, and do a hostile takeover. Do you agree with that? Uh, I think 100%. I mean, I, I think that both... Definitely MSNBC, which has suddenly become far more frustrating over the past few years than even CNN, which is bizarre. I never thought I'd say that. But um, not only do they not criticize these leaders, but they play active defense by clogging the airwaves with stories that are not what voters need to know on the eve of important elections. So we had uh, the first four primaries and caucuses, and uh, Bernie won the first three. And they spent all that time denying that he could be considered even a front runner, let alone the front runner. All the while throwing around historical allusions to him being like the Nazis invading France or a disease hitting our shores. And then South Carolina, which proved to be incredibly important. Uh, Joe Biden was expected to do well there. And what do you know, on the eve of South Carolina, uh, if you weren't watching those networks, you probably heard that Joe Biden had to take back a claim he'd made that he had been arrested in South Africa while trying to see Nelson Mandela. It wasn't based in truth at all. But you didn't hear about that on CNN or MSNBC. Seems like that might be relevant going into an important uh, primary where he's expected to do well. But they protected him. Some people would argue. I've only, and I say some people. I heard. I've heard this a few times on on the news in the last week that Biden supporters feel that the press is actually bored with him and they're not interested in talking about him. So I think I think both sides feel obviously that their candidate is not getting. Yeah, well, fair coverage, and they're correct. That's I mean, the thing. but but there is there is. Listen, I ran for Congress, and I always hated the coverage of the campaign. I look back at it now. I mean, obviously, because I didn't fake, win, it was fake news. I was very upset by the fact. But I have to realize that. Listen, it was easier for the press to make the headline say Clay Aiken raises less money than his opponent than to have the opponent's name raises more than his because people will click on my name faster than they'll click on a name that they don't recognize. Do you, do you, who do, who does that, who does that hurt? Who does that, does that, is that bias on the media's part? Or is that just, Lauren, the fact that media is driven by clicks and it's driven by money at this point, and therefore they're going to tell the stories that they think their viewers want to hear? I think it's both. I think there's absolutely sensation, sensationalized journalism going on, but I think, you know, like Don mentioned, there's, obviously ignoring really important issues or stories because it might hurt their candidate their candidate um if we look at all of joe biden's recent gaffes right i mean i've always, to me i don't think you should choose who you support based on gas, but we know that the press loves to talk about gas, especially when Trump does them, which is fine. It's funny and people enjoy clicking on that. But when it comes to Biden, there's been a surprising amount of silence from the mainstream media. And I think even if the most blatant example of media bias toward a candidate, I think we saw recently was um, the whole debacle with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, the allegations of sexism. No, I don't. I don't believe that there was just magically they found like the hot mic uh, rec- recorded and released it of that little confrontation um, of uh, Elizabeth Warren accusing Bernie Sanders of calling her a liar. Um, never mind the, the rest of that whole debate. You so thought I th- that was a setup? You think that might have been a setup? Yeah, I mean, you don't act, you don't accidentally. Oops, I was recording it. We just happened to cl- like to close in. If you work in media, you know any camera angle, any it's shot, it's deliberate. Um, so I do think that was very, very suspicious. I think that was done to hurt Bernie Sanders' campaign. 
proudly wearing the tinfoil hat here. I, I think if you look at how the, the media has treated Bernie Sanders' campaign versus Elizabeth Warren's campaign, they very clearly have a preference toward Warren over Sanders. And I think that's, I mean, Warren isn't doing well, obviously, but I think Sanders would have done even better had he not had this uphill battle Some, and face challenges that Joe Biden, frankly, just has not. So, well, oh, at the same time, though, I mean, it is, you know, I, I so I moved out to um, L.A. a few months ago and after working in D.C. media for a long time. And I mean, look, the reality is they didn't want Joe Biden. Um, they wanted, you know, any number of people before him. They being? Uh, being the, the D.C. sort of center-left press. Um, like, the first candidate who was the media favorite was Kamala Harris. Um, even though she literally had no polling support at any point in time. Um, <laughs> and, I, and uh, like, if you, but, like, I, I remember watching uh, or reading, uh, listening to the, the podcast of 538, and Nate Silver, their founder was basically like yeah i'm gonna put her in the top tier and they said well why he was like well i don't have any data but i just think she's gonna do well well uh, then that, i mean does uh, that not a little bit dispute your own argument if if the media if the the dc media wanted a particular candidate promoted in some ways well, a particular thing, candidate yeah. and then that candidate dropped out before the first primary maybe the media wasn't as influential as they think they were and be. that's and that's and that's very true um i mean but it, it it but it depends i mean the the biggest problem that 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 a political candidate has is people knowing who you are like and that that was the huge thing that donald trump had in 2016 like all of his republican rivals were all saying oh this is not fair no one talks about us no one knows who we are um, and, you know, I mean, in the case of Ted Cruz, that was probably a good thing. But, uh, it, it, you know, like they, they, they were constantly whining about how they couldn't get coverage. And they were right. So, but, so Kamala Harris got a lot of coverage disproportionate to her, but she's just not very appealing. So, so it, it sounds to me like I've got, we got three people on the panel today who are somewhat skeptical of media coverage in general um, that maybe we're not always getting – Correct me if I'm wrong. Jump in and tell me I'm not I'm not representing you correctly. But we're not always getting the full story. How much does that affect? And I want to change the subject a little bit. How much to the other big story of the week? How much does that affect us when we have something big like the coronavirus that that has we we just today New York has found New York City has found another cluster of ten uh, cases within New York City. Los Angeles, where we are right now, um, has found seven cases today. Uh, we're seeing this start to I won't use the word explode, but we're seeing it certainly um, come into our consciousness a lot more. Is this story as is this story being inflated because of the media? Do you think this story is not being talked about honestly by the government or by the media or by anybody? I mean, how is coronavirus and how is media bias, so to speak, affecting non-political issues like a pandemic, potentially? Well, I think, like Lauren was saying, there is a sensationalism streak in the media. Uh, and it's not just the mainstream media. Um, if I put out a video, I, I need people to click on it. Uh, you know, even if it's about a topic that I think is super substantive, I have to present it in a way that's going to get people to pay attention to it. And I think wait, that... Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that you present it in a way that is different than what it is? No, what? In terms of, like, thumbnail and title, okay, I mean. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Once they've clicked on that, they'll forget what the title was. Um, and then we can get to the substance, people. Um, but so, here's an issue. Uh, virtually no one talking about the coronavirus knows anything about the coronavirus, viruses, vaccines, public health, anything like that. 
Uh, if they're having doctors on, great. That's a good start. I think they should have more academics on. Um, but when you combine a desire to cover something that's sexy and exciting and the people have a strong emotional reaction to, like a pandemic, especially if it involves a cruise ship, like CNN always loves that, um, and they don't necessarily have much information about what they're talking about, like understandably so. These are complicated issues. Coronavirus is novel. It's literally the novel coronavirus. Um, then I don't think that that is not the best way to educate people about, uh, about a topic like this. People should be freaked out to some extent, but exactly what freaked is that extent? Out to some extent. <laughs> to some extent. Freaked out. Reasonably it's freaked out. <laughs> Do you think that, I mean, not, again, this is a political talk show, so I don't know that we always should make certain issues like this political, but and they're going to become that way. Do you think that this is something that may hurt President Trump this year when, whether he's handling it well and his administration is doing what they want to or not, there seems to be, this seems to be the type of thing you can't fight with machismo and, and you need to fight with facts and science and organization, do you think this is the type of thing that could be damaging to the president in this election year? I think absolutely. I think anything that has any type of negative connotation or sentiments attached to it is going to be damaging for the person in charge. Um, unless Trump can magically snap his fingers and come up with some sort of miracle cure uh, before November, then this is something that, whether it's deserved or not, his administration is going to have to deal with being the bearer of bad news or having to, if anything goes wrong, it's going to be on them. Um, when it comes to something like a coronavirus, I have people asking me to cover this all the time on my show. I haven't. And no, it's not because I'm secretly a Chinese pawn, which is a, a theory out there. Um, it's because, I, like you said, I don't know anything. About, I'm the type of person who gets the sniffles and thinks I have coronavirus. So if there's ever a person you don't want to hear about it from, it's me. I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to that. Um, and when it comes to media coverage as well, I don't think it necessarily needs to be a political bias. I think it is just the sensationalism. It's, it's what people are interested in, they're worried about, so they're clicking it. Um, and then you can kind of feed that into, oh, is the administration doing enough? It's, it's great news if you're in the media, but I, I think it's it's been negative for the, the average person who's probably not getting correct information, being maybe more scared or heck, even not scared enough. I don't even, I don't even know what to think at this point. Um, it, it is one of the more worrying examples of how much media, I don't want to say interference, but can affect our lives and how we perceive potential problems. I don't like to peddle in conspiracy theories. I think they're, I think they're conspiracy theories and they tend hat wearing people peddling them. But is it strange at all that the president has placed Mike Pence in, in charge of this particular issue that is not something that is going to be solvable by anybody other than perhaps God and scientists? Well, I mean, that's is why it, well, it's Mike Pence, because yeah. he has that connection. Because he has the connection. The reason I say this is because there are certainly conspiracy theorists out there who are wearing their tin hats and saying, okay, this is the opportunity for Donald Trump to get Mike mm. Pence off the ticket. He's going to be able to blame him for the coronavirus mm. when more people get sick. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't put anything past Trump in terms of doing something for his advantage. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there's just no evidence that this is a thing that's going to spiral out of control. I mean, the infection rate is still less than 4%. It's higher than normal for a flu, but... I mean, people die. Unfortunately, people die every year from from the flu. Um, that's a reality. And uh, but I mean, you know, uh, but you but you 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 started Newsbusters. You've done a lot of other stuff since. But sure. you sort of 
kind of made your way in the media world mm-hmm. by questioning yeah. the, well, the I, I veracity say, well, of the media's coverage well, of things. Well, what I would say is I think that they should have paid more attention to it in the beginning of when the, when it started spreading to other countries. Um, so, uh, but but they, but there was two, there was this you know focus on impeachment, which the average American doesn't give a shit about, if I can say that, uh, without a belief. This is a podcast. Uh, I think you can say whatever you want to. <laughs> uh, the average American didn't care about any of that, um, and so so when the when there was. There, there could have been less spread of coronavirus if the public had been more aware of it, I think, and if politicians had been more aware of it and had it on the radar. Start with you, John. Chandra asks, how can we hold anyone accountable in this political environment, from the executive to Congress to journalists? GOP senators, these are her words, GOP senators agreed Trump was guilty but didn't convict, and we're worse for it. And now cable news can't stop lamenting about socialism, further psychologically embedding a false narrative, and few give Warren her props. It's all very discouraging. That's from that's from Chandra, who submitted that. Um, thoughts on just holding people accountable in general? Uh, I couldn't agree more with the last sentence. It is all... Very frustrating. The entire thing. And I think that mechanisms for accountability in virtually all areas of our life seem less effective now than they have been for possibly a very long time. Um, Politically, I mean, like when I think about the the primary that we just had in Texas's 20th district uh, in Congress yesterday, it was uh, Henry Cuellar versus Jessica Cisneros. Henry Cuellar uh, has voted with Trump 60 to 70 percent of the time, even though he's a Democrat. He's taken money from all of the industries that that the Democrats are supposedly putting distance between themselves. And uh, Nancy Pelosi went down and campaigned with him and supported him. And the DNC spent money to make sure that Jessica Cisneros, a 26-year-old lawyer who has all the right positions, lost by just a couple of points. So he did everything you should do to no longer deserve the support of your party. Like, I know they're going to support incumbents much of the time but in a like a hard blue district that would have been won by any any democrat that won why not have a good one but they will stand by incumbents there's no accountability for bad behavior once you get in um there is some accountability left chris matthews retired i guess so there are certain things you can do that will cause you to have consequences but but yeah i would agree um uh donald trump uh i think there's virtually nothing he could do that's going to that's going to interfere with him continuing on till at least the election. I think, uh, like you, you mentioned about Mike Pence, like he could potentially, the, the theory is he's putting up Mike Pence. Conspiracy this is way of getting, rid of with him, get, getting rid of him. <laughs> um, he could get rid of him today if he wanted to. What, like the, the Republican base is going to be like, oh, that's a step too far. You got rid of Pence. I'm not with you anymore. I'm well, taking off my red Well, cap. legally, he probably couldn't get rid of Pence, so it might be difficult for him to fire a constitutionally. There's a process. Position. I'm just saying, I, I well, think he could that, drop him from the t- ticket. He could drop him from the ticket, yeah, certainly. Hypothetically. Yeah. Well, and, and some people think that that indeed might happen. But anyway, yeah, I, I am incredibly frustrated by the fact that it seems like if you, are, if you have a position of power, especially if you have money, you are free from virtually any consequences, unless you're Chris Matthews or recently Mike Bloomberg. To you, Lauren, the, que- the same question, but why are people who, you bring up Mike Pence, he is constitutionally protected. He is actually the only person who doesn't work for the president and the president can't fire. Why are, according to Chandra and other people who've asked, why are there so, why is there so little appetite or interest from anyone in the Republican Party for calling out the president? Well, I think if we look at the Republican Party specifically, the primary numbers, um, Trump has 97% support, right? And I think Republicans are very cautious going forward to do anything that might be construed or in actuality divide the party in any way, shape, or form. I mean, we have never Trumpers um, 
who are still very vocal about the fact that they don't like the the president at all. But if you look at congressmen who are actually in there, um, even people like, I don't know, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, they're not being as vocal, I think, lately as they may have been a few months ago or even during impeachment. And I think it's because now people feel, okay, it's down, it's crunch time, right? We're going to have this election coming up. Um, Maybe you don't like Trump, but do you you prefer Trump over someone like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders? And I think a lot of Republicans, even if they're not Trump fans, they're they're weighing that and they're being calculated and saying Trump's not great, but I would rather him than a Democrat. Is that the case for both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden? Um, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I think the you know, just going back to the question is why isn't there more accountability for politicians? Is that um, the media environment in this country and probably most in the world, and I can't say for sure, but um, is controlled more by people who are supportive of particular factions and not interested in the truth, let's say, so or accountability. So, in other words, like if you're a, you know, as I said earlier, if, if you're, a, you know, somebody who goes on, who MSNBC will not invite you on the air if you want to say that, you know, if you wanted to say that the that Democrats are messing up on impeachment, they won't let you on the air if you're a liberal. If you're a conservative, then they'll uh, they'll let you on sometimes. But and then and then by the same token, if you are you know wanting to criticize Trump, uh, but you are a conservative, well, Fox News will never have you. And that's the sort of that's that's the biggest issue is there isn't enough intramural criticism. Um, in this in this country, between the different sides, and there's everyone. Wants you don't a think safe there's space. enough intramural criticism, but the yeah. entire Democratic primary has been an intramural fight. Yeah, but it, most of it was not even of any substance. Um, so, in other words, like the whole criticism, like discussion of socialism, democratic socialism, like. It's all nonsense because Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. Like as a as a political science term, he's not a socialist. Um, but he won't admit that he's not a socialist. Uh, he calls himself the democratic socialist, and so everybody gets hung up on the word, and it's just stupid. Um, so sorry, Frank. You Frank G has a question, um, I want, and it speaks almost exactly to what you just were talking about, Matthew. Frank, I got it. I have better written. That's why. Oh. It's kind of a... where, where are you from, Frank? Uh, Chino Hills. Okay. So to my conservatives and liberals, chime in if you wish. Um, we are witnessing the rise in popularity of socialism. And as a conservative, we are watching candidates like Bernie Sanders and AOC rise to prominence by selling socialist ideas. Simultaneously, we are aware that almost 60% of the country makes less than $40,000 and nearly half of the working class makes less than $30,000 a year, according to the Social Security Association. Meanwhile, we have companies paying little to nothing in taxes while maintaining a low working wage. Is it possible that the rise of socialism is due to our passive nature on preserving the ideals of capitalism? You want to take that, John? Uh, yeah, I think everything that you just said is all certainly related. I think that there is going to be greed in a capitalist system, and they have messed up and they've gotten too greedy. They allowed the income inequality to, to get to ridiculous uh, extents that a lot of people are not comfortable with. They've ridden too many decades of uh, wage growth that barely outpaces inflation. Um, the the cable news there uh, shows 
they're continually telling us, like, how could we be frustrated about the economy? The economy is doing well. I mean, look at the NASDAQ, look at the S&P, all of that, when the vast majority of working people don't own any stocks. And if they do, it's virtually nothing. And so I think that the fact that I saw a poll in Texas in advance of the primary that socialism um, just as a vague concept, and I think that it's often ill-defined, uh, rates uh, more favorable than capitalism. I think that they are reaping what they've sown economically for a number of decades. Um, Frank, we had everyone in the audience kind of self-select a little bit their their political leanings. And Frank, you put down conservative as your as your political lean. Yes. And so just for, for me, it's it's interesting because most people think of some of the arguments that you made as being more progressive than being conservative, but it seems like you're, the arguments that you were making in your question seem like you feel like they may be conservative um, positions also. Well, yes, because I believe capitalism is a fundamentally better system than socialism, but I can't help but not see the flaws that's happening right now. And I believe that preserving a capitalistic system is going to only help our country and, not hinder it from, you know, and socialism is going to do the opposite. And so, but we're watching the rise of socialism. And to me, I, I'm, as a conservative, I feel like we're not doing enough to preserve capitalism. And this is why this is so popular. So this speaks really almost to the heart of what the whole podcast here is about. The fact that there are ways that we can finally, in, in some ways can agree, mm -hmm. even if we don't necessarily put ourselves in the same camp. So, Lauren, I would love for you to speak to that, that as a conservative, his position, correct me, please, if I'm getting this wrong, but his position is that he wants capitalism and he believes capitalism is the most uh, successful and the most, most effective form of government. But in order to preserve capitalism, certain things need to be done that may or may not be considered socialist by some people, but certain protections should be put in place in capitalism so that it stays strong. How would you feel about, how do you feel about that? So personally, as someone whose family is from Hong Kong, grew up in Hong Kong, the most capitalist, oh, it pains me to say not country, but special administrative region uh, in the world. <laughs> um, I love capitalism, but I think if we look at what the problems are in the U.S. and the very real grievances that a lot of the people who are supporting Bernie Sanders has, you can't ignore the fact that there have been systemic failures. And if I look at the policies that are kind of going on that have led to things um, like huge student debt, um, an enormous health care costs, it doesn't, to me, more than anything, it seems like a failure of corrupt and ineffective politicians who have bowed down to special interest groups. This is outrageous. And I think if the Trump wave taught us anything, it's that people, Republicans, Democrats, they are very upset and fed up with the establishment and I think with good cause. Now, if you're a conservative and you don't want to see, you know, socialism take over the country, um, then I think you really need to ask yourselves, how how can you address the very real problems that people have? There are people with $200,000 worth of student debt out there. You can't just tell them, well, you borrowed the loan. No, that's not a good enough answer. This is a real problem that people have. Unless the conservatives can come up with a solution to lower tuition prices, to lower health care costs, then frankly, you're just pushing people into um, supporting someone like Bernie Sanders, right? Because unless you have a, a viable option of your own, it's not enough to say, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, right? Rhetoric isn't going to solve hundreds of thousands worth of medical bills, right? So I think we need to talk about, okay, Healthcare costs are insane. How do we lower the cost? Right, regardless of who's paying for it, um, you know the insurance companies, single player, whatever. 
costs are too high. We need to examine why, because there's something going on here. It doesn't make sense that Americans are paying so much more than everyone else in the, in the country. Same thing with tuitions, right? Um, as time has gone on, the costs of a university degree uh, compared to something like housing has risen exponentially, and it doesn't make sense either. Um, unless Republicans can go to especially young voters and say, we hear your problems, they are real problems, it's not you just being an entitled millennial, then there's going to be problems. Yeah, um, and I, actually, I, I, I thought that was a, a great way you framed his question, uh, and, and I, I loved Lauren's response on that. Um, I would say, like, pr- the idea of protecting capitalism, though, that's literally stuff that Elizabeth Warren says on the regular. Um, and so there, and, and Tucker Carlson, to some extent, talks about that as well. So, you know, I personally started off as a conservative activist. Um, and, you know, I, I was very interested in policy and about data. And over time, you know, I came to the conclusion that there was no interest or care among Republican elites for the public. They just don't care. In fact, somebody I somebody told me straight up, it doesn't matter if a majority of Americans don't agree with us. All that matters is if we can get most of the voters to agree with us. And that has lots of implications. Do um, those answers satisfy you? Yeah. On September 17th, 2009, 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California. She had been arrested at a beachside restaurant for failing to pay a tab and taken to the Lost Hills Sheriff's Station. You know, I mean, she's not from that area, and I would hate to wake up to a morning report, lost somewhere with her head chopped off. The police released her just after midnight with no car, no cell phone, no money. She doesn't know the area. She's never been in your area. Well, I think she's depressed. That's what has me more That's worried you more than just her... Okay. Mitrice disappeared into the darkness and was never seen alive again. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the podcast Helen Gone. We're going to try to find out what really happened to Mitrice Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone Season 3. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel. This, my friend, is Hawthorne Manor. The most unusual guests. They sound like someone you trust. Trick or treat! No, sweetie, don't touch it. Don't look at it. A tour guide that can't be trusted. Was it luck or fate that placed you here? We'll never know. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? I know you. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. Produced in three-dimensional binaural audio to place you right in the center of the story in ways you'll have to hear to believe. For full exposure, listen with headphones or AirPods. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do people in in the audience, do you guys, do you agree with what Matthew just said, that people, that politicians, by, by a show of hands, we'll just do that. How many people believe that politicians actually do care? About you? Well, that was pretty <laughs> depressing if you're a politician because there were no hands that were raised. I what, could name uh, a couple, maybe, <laughs> if I had to. Go for it. 
Uh, I, I think there are some people that are, it's hard to deny that they're authentic. I mean, the idea that uh, Bernie Sanders is in this just for the fun of it, I think, is, is hard. To, he hasn't been doing it for 40 years. People get bored by then. Um, and, and I do think that AOC is very genuine, too. Uh, I think there's a few others that on certain issues I definitely agree with. I think that uh, when, I, when I've talked with Congressman Rokana from California about the war in Yemen, um, his opposition to it comes through in a way that I don't think he's a savvy enough politician to fake. So I don't trust anyone on everything, and I don't trust most people on anything, but there are some that I trust on certain issues. Yeah. What about well, you, Lauren? Oh, well, go ahead, oh, oh, what, And, and the, 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 the issue, though, is that politics has become so professionalized. Like Political consultants are the main reason why American politics is broken, uh, and that's because they specialize in breaking the public. Like and charging the and politicians charging as no, much as they can. Yeah, Trust like, me, I remember again, that. Like, I, I personally know people who specialized in this. Well, and, didn't Donald Trump uh, just say the other day to when he was when the president tweeted mm-hmm. last night about Mike Bloomberg being? I can't. I'm not going to quote him ever, but um, I believe he said that he got taken for a ride by his consultants. So, yeah, well, I mean, and, and he absolutely did. I mean, and 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 so did Tom Steyer. Um, but like. It, TV ads don't work like the, this within the political science world. Um, so in, in my podcast, I talk with people like the Pew Research Center and academics and like in the, in the poli sci world, advertising and, you know, campaign field offices and signs and all that stuff. It's been shown for about 20 years to have almost no effect. And this has been known within the poli-sci academic world for two decades almost. And But most people who run campaigns, they don't – well, either they know it or and they don't tell or uh, they don't know it, in which case they're really terrible at their job. Um, well, really fast if I could add, like I, I think you're right to point out Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg from the very beginning, they've been listening to their probably incredibly well-paid consultants. But we also have an interesting test case of someone who started halfway through, and that is that Elizabeth Warren ran a very different campaign for the first six months of 2019 than she did once she hired on literally hundreds of people who'd worked with Barack Obama. And uh, suddenly the things that she had been talking about that had driven up her poll numbers, so much so, in fact, that she briefly eclipsed Joe Biden, she was suddenly backing off of Medicare for All, and she was turning her fire on her closest ideological allies, like Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And, I, and I think that her fall was not coincidentally around that time. I yeah. think that she started to take very bad advice that she paid a lot of money for. Yeah, well, and, and the issue is that political consultants don't want a politician to be the president of everybody. They want to have that person be elected by just enough to get over the finish line and, and fuck everybody else. Um, that's, that is the mentality of all political consultants. Um, and they don't, they don't care about the people who are not going to vote for the candidate. And, and that's the reason that we're so divided in this country is that people, you don't see enough concern about, you know, you don't see people on, uh, in Vox, you know, saying, oh, you know, I'm worried about the farmers in North Dakota, um, that they're getting screwed over by with this and that or the other. Like, it's just not happening. And you don't see Republicans saying, you know, um, I wish, you know, I, I, I wish we could do something about education in, you know, um, inner city Chicago. It's not happening. Michael A's got a question. Um, and we'll start. I want to start with um with Michael A's question, I want to start with Lauren, because you've talked about it a little bit, John. You can definitely follow up on it, too. But um, this this kind of speaks to a little bit about your Texas uh, race. But I want to get your your take on it, Lauren. Michael A? Sure. So my whole life, uh, things like voter turnout has been a problem. And 
in uh, in 2010, we saw that the right wing establishment seems to understand that if they fight for what their base wants, they will become more powerful and they will gain support, even if they don't win that political fight necessarily. What I would like to see explored is why does the establishment left seem to insist that if they fight for issues that are popular, not only with their own base, but with the country as a whole, that it will weaken them politically and often use this as a reason to not engage in political fights. Well, John, why don't you take it first? But Lauren, I want you to take on your sure, take on it. Sure. I think it's a confluence of a couple of different things. I think if by establishment left, you mean like the DNC, basically, which I would not call the left, but I but I get what you're saying. Um, I think it's a combination of a few things. Uh, like if I were to list uh, policies that are, are very popular, um, like, for instance, single payer health care, replacing private health insurance has won in literally every one of the primaries that we've had so far. Um, so, for instance, that policy, why not run on that? It's popular. Uh, they don't actually like the idea. I think that they personally are opposed to it. Um, I think that they are paid to oppose it. The industries that donate to them don't want to see it happen. And uh, also, uh, by their very nature, Democrats tend to be uh, terrified of taking risks, I think. And they think that they'll lose if they run on it. And I think that that's why they'll say, we can't have a candidate that runs on the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, free college during an election because, oh my God, that's risky. We could lose to Trump. And then once, let's say the centrist candidate gets through, then they'll say, well, we can't actually pass those bills now because we got to run for re-election in two years. And so they're just popping from fe- usually either fear of defeat or lately defeat to defeat over and over. And their, their personal opposition, the fact that they're paid to oppose these things and their constant fear of electoral consequences means that we get absolutely nothing done. Lauren, do you think that there is, do you think, do you accept that premise? Do you think that Republicans handle that differently than Democrats do? Well, I think, Democrats are being very strategic right now. I think there's absolutely the issue of why aren't people like Nancy Pelosi coming out for things like Medicare for all and such. I think there is the personal bias against it. I don't think she's on the same page as someone like Bernie Sanders. But I think what Democrats understand is that you have to look at not only what issues you voters support, but who supports what and how often do these people vote? If you look at issues like Medicare for all, taxpayer funded college, uh, they pull very well among millennials who tend not to vote very much. So I think they are making a calculated effort there. Like, you know, who are our strongest voters right now? Where, which swing states can we actually have in play, right? Um, Medicare for all and things like that may poll very well across the board in California. How do they poll uh, somewhere like Ohio or Michigan, right? I think they're being very calculated about trying to take back some of the states that they lost to Trump. It's a numbers game for them. Yeah. Michael, is it is it right that do am I right to assume that it sounded like from your question you feel like maybe Republicans do a better job of campaigning than Democrats? Is that is would that be an accurate way to boil it down? That's fair. Campaigns and politics in general often. They play the game better. Do you think that Republicans do a better um, job, John? I'll come to you in a second, Matthew. But do you think that Republicans do a better job? Lauren, do you think Democrats do a better job? Do we always just think the opponent is better than we are at, at playing the game? I think lately, yeah. It's. I, I don't want to say the Republicans are better at campaigning because they're not very good. But I will say lately the Democrats have, have seemed like they're doing worse at it. Yeah. Well, having been on both sides, yeah, on both sides of of the aisle myself, um, yeah, there there definitely is. uh, People are more likely to see the weaknesses on their own side, Uh, but the reality is, in terms of how Republican elites handle 
uh, un, un, let's say, pushing extreme policies like shutting down the government for whatever. That's just not true. That they they don't want to do it. Like Mitch McConnell hated Ted Cruz. Like he would have if he could have legally shot him uh, when he when he was trying to shut down the government, he would have done it. Um, and, and I get and pe- people who were Senate aides and whatnot. Like they they all told me this. Like they and they all hate Ted Cruz. Like everybody there hates Ted Cruz. Um, and, how do you feel about him? Well, uh, but I mean, it maybe wasn't. that's how we come together. There you go. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, um, but. So, but at the same time, it is true that um, Republican, so Republican elite, so like the 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 the, uh, the, the donor class, so the Coke, uh, Charles Koch, and people like him, um, they take the they're they're much more inclined to to push po- positions that are not popular, um, and they then they're playing the long game. And so, whereas Democratic donors are very flighty, uh, and they are also got a lot of money, and they don't want economic populism so why would they want to give up money so that you could have health god i gotta tell you people are depressing me all three of you up here are depressing me to death Um, i want to do two more questions um because i want to hopefully get to a point of me being able to sleep tonight but let's start with eileen's question she wrote in and she said how can we ever achieve a fair democracy when we have severe i feel like i'm just going to be depressed again how can we ever achieve a fair democracy when we have severe voter suppression an inequitable electoral college and citizens united legislation um i'm going to start with you lauren because i want to know if you believe those are valid arguments um if we do have a fair democracy if those things are obstacles and then We'll see how you guys want to weigh in as well. Um, so this is definitely, if she were here right now, she would want to scream at me. I think Eileen, it is. Um, this is not a democracy, right? This is the age-old thing. This is not a democracy. It's a it's a republic, constitutional republic. Um, I understand that things like voter suppression, right, that, that speaks to, to more than just democracy versus republic. People want their voices heard. But I think uh, one of the main concerns that I have more so than... I guess just flat out democracy is control by, I guess, establishment politicians or um, even let's say corporations, things like that. And I think does that not go to her point? Sorry to interrupt about Citizens well, United. Though not necessarily, because I think the 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 opposite of democracy, let's say, is is tyranny. But that that doesn't capture the whole picture because I'm more, I'm more concerned with personal rights and individual freedoms than I am necessarily democracy, right? If if everyone votes to suppress a minority group, then I'm still not happy with that. So I, I want individual liberty and individual, individual freedom, whether that's protecting individuals from the tyranny of the majority or elitist corporations or establishment politicians. Like, I don't... I, I don't care which one of those groups it's standing up against. Um, I think there is a problem with a, a corrupt elite. And, uh, you know... A lot of people say, oh, but if we just had more democracy, maybe it would cure it. I, I don't think that's true. So she used the argument that we are a republic, not a democracy. A republic, I'm assuming you mean that each state has a vote in choosing right. our president. That's what the Electoral College is. That's certainly been a, a point of, of frustration for Democrats in several cycles over the past 20 years where the Electoral College has given the presidency to someone who didn't win the popular vote. I'm assuming, I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm assuming you're not a huge fan of the Electoral College, but does she have a point when she talks about the fact that that's not how the country was set up? I mean, I acknowledge that the Electoral College is in the Constitution. I certainly agree with you there. Um, But I think the Constitution has been amended literally dozens of times, and that's a process that should probably continue. I also think there's a lot of ways that our system are broken that we can't trace back 
uh, to the founders. Uh, gerrymandering is a far more recent development. Um, they didn't have uh, voter ID. Uh, they didn't have and then shut down hundreds of polling places in uh, predominantly minority areas to make sure that those people uh, can't vote. Um, I mean, I saw a guy uh, that was voting at Texas uh, Southern University. He waited seven hours in America in 2020 to vote in a, a goddamn primary, which is ridiculous. And I think it's the product of the fact that we have one party, the Republicans, who I think rightfully decided decades ago that they will do best if the fewest possible people vote. And the Democrats largely shrugged their shoulders. And technically, they support people voting. Hypothetically, they'd be better. And yet, when they had the supermajority in the Senate, what did they do about it? Did we get a national voting day? Did we get national same-day registration, national vote-by-mail, national anything? They did nothing. And it's not even its not even just a moral stance or a political stance. It's a, indeed a pra- pragmatic stance. They lose elections when people are stopped from voting, but they wouldn't even pass some of these changes to protect their own jobs. And it's incredibly frustrating that we have the low turnout that we do for a number of different reasons. We have an apathetic population, a lot of things like that. But a lot of people would like to vote and they can't. And I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Cheer me up, please. Okay. Well, (laughs) I I would say that, you know, the reason, like, there there are lots of things that people want. Like, uh, going back to what John was saying earlier about, you know, universal health coverage. Um, Like, even uh, I I, I used to, to run a weekly poll question slate. Um, for the Hill, and we found that, you know, about only 23% of Americans say that uh, the government should not provide health care for people, um, it, like, in some way or another. So we gave, like, different options. So whether it's single-payer, whether it's, you know, um, subsidized insurance or whatever, like, some variation, No, only 23% of people were like, well, no, you should just pay for it yourself. You know, screw you. Um, that so that's a very small number, um, and what it suggests is that. And if you go down the list, like there are there are a lot of positions that actually the voters of both parties have in common, um, and so even like about half of Republican voters. Um, if you ask them questions to assess their economic perspective, they're actually center left. Um, like half of Republican, more than half of Republican voters, they're not conservative. Um, and so, but but they're conservative. They're they're not economically conservative, but they're religiously conservative. And so, what the challenge for somebody who wants to overcome and bring people together is to say, how do we bring people who have religious conservative viewpoints in, to stop voting for? people who don't care about them. We are gonna, uh, if when we're looking for sponsors for this podcast, we need to look at the antidepressant manufacturers <laughs> of the world because this is making me, it's making me sort of sad. So we're going to end well, with a question. We're going to end with a question from Dave. Um, I want to I get Dave to challenge you all. We have, we have found, I think, today that we've, we agree on some things. At least this panel does. There's, there's a little bit of frustration with establishment politics in general up on this panel. But Dave, I want you to, I want you to ask your question um, of them. I'm a little bit sad like you are, Clay, and I have a question to kind of deal with that here. I've taught government to high school and college students for the last decade. I come across a fair share of my students who are frustrated with politics. They say all politicians are corrupt, and they don't want to even get involved. What do I tell them to say that it's worth getting involved in the process to try to make things better? How do I give them hope? Matthew, let's start with you. Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, 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 the most immediate answer is that... Um, you know, the reason that we have a lot of terrible people as our political leaders is that the better people are not seeking the leadership. 
Um, that's the ultimate reason, um, and there are a lot of reasons for why that that is the case. You know, and um, we, you know, it's, it can be very. Um, you know, it's it, it unnecessarily intimidating, I think, and unnecessarily personalized about being a candidate. You know, like, I don't think it's fair for somebody to say, oh, this person said a mean thing in high school and they're 50 years old. You know, we need to get over that. Um, and so, but, but I mean, ultimately, if you want to have a better system, then you need to talk about why you want a better system. Uh, and 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 we need more discussion of process and more discussion of how to be better because you know you turn on the the TV or you read most websites it's you know it's very negative um, and I, and people would want something more but they actually have to show it with their money and show it with their <laughs> clicks. I mean, I would say I think like I, I don't want to presume which side the the student is on, but uh, but I'll say for, from my point of view because I have to try to keep myself from blowing my brains out on a daily basis doing this job. Um, I would say look to the things that are actually changing because, look, uh, Bernie Sanders losing to Hillary Clinton was absolutely devastating. I thought of that as possibly the last stand of that corrupt way of doing things. It's possible they do have one kick left in that corpse's leg with Joe Biden. But at the same time, look at how much has changed between 2016 and 2020. That uh, Bernie Sanders, while rejecting all of the worst forms of money that I think have a corrosive influence on our politics, raised in February uh, $46.5 million because people have not checked out of the system. Um, You have progressives in the race, and up until recently you had a ton of moderates, but all of them wanted you to believe that they were progressives. They were all saying they support Medicare for All and a Green New Deal. Most of them were lying, but they know that they have to say those things because the electorate is actually changing. Um, you know, like the, the, the uncritical view of uh, sort of an old form of American capitalism, that is changing too. It might take a little bit for it to have obvious electoral consequences, but you are starting to see some good people uh, winning races. I mean, I think the, the AOC who I mentioned before is a great example of that. She beat the fourth most powerful Democrat in the House by just banging on doors, basically. And, uh, you know, I think that, that she has laid out a model that other people can follow, hopefully someday students like yours. Make us feel better, please, Lauren. Well, 2020 politics are depressing for limitless amounts of reasons. But if if there is one silver silver lining, which I guess could be a positive or a negative, it's that literally anything can happen, right? We've seen that with even someone like AOC. A lot of people didn't think that she would beat out the incumbent Democrat in the primary, right? People didn't think that Trump would win. And this is happening internationally. I mean, we have Prime Minister Blackface in Canada. Brexit has passed. Boris Johnson. Um... I think politics is in a it's a it's a very volatile thing right now, which if you're someone who wants change can actually be a good thing. And I think we've seen from all of those things that I've just mentioned, whether it's AOC or Trump or Brexit, there's going to be pushback if you're someone who tries to go against the establishment, who tries to shake up the system. But the fact that those people are even at least making waves, they're at least getting elected, they're at least bringing their issues to the news, um, it it shows us that change is still possible, that things aren't so set in stone that it's you, you can't even break through the scene anymore. And I, I think that's encouraging. Seth's got a question for everyone. What you got? Okay, so that we're starting to see a surge of progressive candidates coming forward as far as not taking corporate money and starting a grassroots project. Um, do you think that we'll ever see that from the right, right? Because most people that I've talked to, either from the right or the left, I'm a liberal, um, right or a left tend to not like that corporate PAC money in their politics, but yet we still vote 
for people who have corporate PACs. And I think I think it was you that mentioned um, people need to start running. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing a surge from from the left, but not necessarily from the right. So do we think we're going to see a little bit more from that? Lauren, do you want to? Um, the Trump campaign does love to tout when they have more small donors. Uh, do I ever see a Republican saying we're not taking any PAC money? No, no, they well, want the money. I well, mean, just in, fairness, in fairness, just this week, was it not... Um, Please edit out this long, awkward pause of mine. Um, God, it wasn't the one who drives me crazy from Florida. Matt Gates. Yes. Just this week, Matt Gates from Florida said that he was, thank you very much, Matthew Sheffield, for giving me that name because I forgot. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt, Matt Gates a good came, first name. came forward and said that he was not going to accept any money from PACs, yeah. I believe. Now, whether or not, whether he's self funding yeah. or what, do you well, know the I motivation? Would say, I, no, I mean, I actually. There were a lot of, um, and and this is another thing that would never be allowed on MSNBC, there are actually a lot of positive things that came out of the Trump 2016 primary, I think, Um, and that is that he was emphatically against the Republican corporate establishment, at least rhetorically. and um, you know he 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 changed. They merged together after he got elected or got the nomination. But the reality is, he talked extensively about how uh, wealthy uh, corporations skew Republican politics, and he talked about how he was going to raise taxes on them. He talked about how he was going to raise the minimum wage. So, like these are discussions that are now actually possible to have. Um like and again, whatever you think of Tucker Carlson, he actually talks about these things on Fox News. If you if before Trump, if anyone on Fox News said anything remotely close to that, they would have been fired like that. We got another one. Hi, my question is, how does it serve us as a country when leaders, both domestically and internationally, continue stoking a they versus us mentality uh, when that really puts us at risk for a civil war? John? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I would ask, so what are some they versus us mentalities that you're you're thinking of? Um, like, I've gotten into conversation with people from different political sides, and it's all they, 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 they. It's like, you know, the left, the right. There's just such this, like, coming for us since, you know, since that, I just feel it's creating a bigger, bigger. I've had the same discussion because I have members in my family who disagree with me vehemently on politics. And when I do my very best to say, you know what, I don't feel like the Democrats on my side have done a very good job on this. And I'll, I'll, I'll admit that my party didn't necessarily do the best thing in the world. I've had people in my family say, try to do the same thing on their side and said, well, okay, yes, I don't agree with Trump on this, but the Democrats do it too. Is that the kind of the they versus us you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, like literally I had an aunt who said they, speaking about the Democratic Party, they all want to kill babies at full term. And I'm like, I've never met a Democrat personally that actually said that. She, you know, it's like they, 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 and and mm. us. And I mean, I've heard it even come in some of the things that you guys talk. I know not all of it's necessarily vindictive, but it does seem to just continue building this they, us, different sides. And we should be more collective as a country, right? How do we how do we do that? Yeah, I, look, I think the the category of they versus us that should be totally out is demonization of like immigrants, a religion, whatever, anything like that. Obviously, is totally out in, in terms of like like uh, in the Democratic Party, like different camps being mad at each other, or even Democrats and Republicans being mad at each other. Uh, I think it can be corrosive to social events. It can be corrosive to family relationships and even you know interpersonal relationships. But I don't think that that's actually that new. I, I think that the parties have disliked each other for a long time. I don't know that we're that much more partisan in that sense than we were. 
But I do think that one thing that is influencing it is that I think that media is getting way more insular. And I think they are contributing to a, a constant victimhood complex that everyone is against you. And I think one of the things that leads to that is the incentives for media are all wrong. Like coming out and being super reasonable and trying to play devil's advocate and trying to see things from everyone's side. I like that as a reasonable person. Most audience, even potential, they don't like that because they can find a purer form of what you're giving that doesn't make them think about inconvenient, uncomfortable things. So I think audiences self-selecting almost like with drugs to an ever pure, pure, stronger version I think that leads to really irrational, unreasonable people in the media. And I think that they are some of the the biggest pushers of they versus us. Uh, According to one philosopher whose name has long since been forgotten in my freshman political philosophy class, there are two different ways to unify people. You have common humanity or common enemy. Right. And I think what we we see more and more is that in our political discourse, we are relying more heavily on common enemy than we are common humanity. It's a it's a lot easier, especially when it comes to politics, to say this is a problem and it's because of them. There's one more powerful than the other. Um, Unfortunately, I think if history has shown us, it's probably common enemy that's more powerful than common humanity. And and the political science research, 100 percent. Does yeah, that does so. that bode well mm-hmm. for one candidate versus another? If if Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the nominees, and Donald Trump uses more of an, an uh, antagonistic approach, and Joe Biden attempts, as he has implied that he might, to do something a little bit less antagonistic and try to be morning in America. I mean, look, his call to restore the soul of the nation doesn't do anything for me, but I'm really biased. I've endorsed a different guy. Maybe for people who are sort of fed up, either with they versus us or just how crazy things seem or they think that Donald Trump is literally one of the stupidest stupidest people they've ever seen in their life. Maybe they'll just be like, you know what? I don't even care who it is. I don't care if it's Joe Biden. I just want something different. That's possible. We've seen that a lot in recent presidential elections. Um, But I think that people want someone that is obviously fighting for them. And I think that does not have to come in the form of demonizing anyone. But they want to know that that, that you have their back. And I don't think that Joe Biden's communication style, I don't think it sends that signal very strongly at all. Yeah. Well, in in terms of sort of getting, trying how to to get away from us versus them, um, I think, you know... And we keep talking about cable TV a lot, but that's because well, so, you do. Uh, well, it so utterly <laughs> dominates American politics. These which, other two aren't on cable TV. They've uh, gone and branched out on their own. Yeah. No one has done their own thing. Well, and that's what I was. But that's <laughs> you what should I, be watching their shows well, instead. And that's literally what I was going to say. Actually, is that if you if you watch the the cable television shows, it is like it rots your brain. Don't watch cable news. It's crap. Um, and it, hell, all your friends don't watch it. Like, do you both agree um, on that as well? Yeah, absolutely. For the most part, so okay, look at there. Yeah. Another, yeah. another kumbaya um, moment brought yeah, to you by Politicon. But basically, they set up they set up panels so that people will just have stupid fights with each other, and in many cases, neither person knows what they're talking about. Uh, so. Don't support that. Don't watch it. Tell your family don't watch it. Tell your friends don't watch it because instead it, listen to this this podcast right, yeah. and, and support and independent media and and support people who are trying to do something different. May's got a question too. And my question has to do with the legal profession, and I wanted to ask 
what role does the American Bar Association or what can they do in terms of corralling some of the uh, conduct we see our lawyers uh, putting forth these days? Can you give us an example? Well, I could start at the very top with our attorney general, but that wasn't who I had in mind when I wrote the question, just any of them. Uh, we tend to see a lot of, uh, they take uh, great pleasure or just push the envelope way over the top when it comes to addressing legal matters. And lying doesn't seem to uh, present a problem for them. I think the only lawyer we see right now that may be paying a big price for his um, sins would be Michael Avenatti, but Michael Avenatti doesn't have anything to do with policy and the like in our government. It's the ones that are actually making decisions that affect our everyday lives that I would think the Bar Association would want to do something about. I mean, doctors lose licenses for malpractice. Teachers lose the ability to teach. Even some policemen get punished for doing bad things, but lawyers just seem to have free reign. So it's a it's a again an extreme behavior from from lawyers in this case, news media, news anchors in some cases too. So I guess your question it sounds like to me is is there a governing is there something to be done about extremism in the legal profession that we're not seeing done? And you can use that to use that same question to address just extremism and that sensationalism not from so much extremism, but when it's actually wrong. I mean. It's just wrong, outright wrong. Who governs that type of thing? Well, I'm very, very skeptical, whether it's politicians, doctors, lawyers, or cops, of these professions, their ability to self-govern. And I think if you talk about lawyers, you technically can be disbarred, and that's something that the bar can do. If you look at how often it happens, though, I think, frankly, not often enough. And I think with... With the increasing amount of calls for criminal justice reform, we see how the system in terms of the laws may be broken, but a lot of the times lawyers are complicit in making a bad situation worse for someone who they're supposed to be protecting. I think there needs to be um, third-party oversight. I don't want lawyers having the ability to monitor lawyers and say that everything's okay, even though you have people who are crying out saying, no, it's not. Uh, you know, my court-appointed attorney didn't do enough to help me. They were terrible. And I think that's not going to solve itself until we realize that maybe the people who should be watching the lawyers aren't other lawyers. So who should be doing it? Well, I, I've actually thought about this a lot. Like, how how do we do that? Um is it perhaps a, uh, you know, the state legislatures for each state? Uh, I would love to be able to see potentially lawyers from different states be able to take each other to task because right now, because the states are, or the bars by state, um, you have almost this like crony um, protectionism or it, they operate like a cartel. Uh, I have a strong distrust of lawyers in case you guys didn't under, uh, didn't realize that. But uh, yeah, I think there absolutely needs to be at least a discussion about that. I mean, I'm, I'm hardly a, an expert, but, uh, but I'll, I'll constrain my comments to the possible impact they could have on politics. So, for instance, um, William Barr, I, I think he has no business whatsoever being in that position. And, and I think that one thing that was definitely missed in the entire Ukraine and impeachment thing was his involvement. He managed to skate by. I mean, he, he tried to, to hush up the entire thing when he was implicated in it all, all along. And it had no consequences on him whatsoever. Now, presumably, he could have been disbarred, but I don't know that that honestly would have hurt him at all. 
there have been some Trump judges that have been put up for consideration. And the, the bar has said, no, they have literally no qualifications whatsoever. There was one guy who his greatest qualification was that he'd written some sci-fi books. But it didn't matter. Nobody cared. Like, well, and I think it's, and they it, still got confirmed. Exactly. Well, that, that's what I mean. Why? Why should the senators care? Like, why would if Mitch McConnell puts up a judge and the bar association is like, no, he's grossly unqualified. Mitch McConnell will think noted. Now I'm putting him in because he said he'll do what I want. There is there has been an ongoing demonization and war on expertise where we mistrust anyone with advanced degrees, knowledge, a lifetime of experience in an area. Look, I have no vested interest in the Bar Association on the state or national level, but I do think that the ability of those organizations to sort of like give signals of who is qualified and who is not, like the, the respect for that is at an all-time low. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the the easier, quote-unquote, method to be responsive to what you're looking at is to encourage people to file complaints. You can literally file a complaint with the California bar against somebody if you think they've engaged in unethical conduct. Um, and that is something that they are obligated under the rules of their association that they must investigate those. But complaints. it's other lawyers um, investigating other lawyers. And a lot of times but, when people want to yeah, bring but, forth uh, a case, you're not going to find a lawyer to represent you if you're going after another lawyer. Um, that's, that's, that is true. Um, but I would, and, and, and that's why I think one of the other big things that needs to be done is that there needs to be a significantly, uh, larger amount of money spent on public defense, defense lawyers. Um, uh, because my wife used to work for the DC public defender. Uh, I saw all kinds of awful. So you just want a bigger paycheck for her. <laughs> <laughs> well, she doesn't work there anymore, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I saw all kinds of things that were done that shortcuts that were taken, um, and, you know, I, I mean, frankly, I would not, not only want to spend more on public defense, but also, you know, make it so that attorneys who who are wrongfully prosecuting people, they have to serve the sentences. Uh, like, I would love that. <laughs> Interesting. So um, we're going to close every episode with a segment that we call Pull the Plug. Um, we're going to indulge our panelists and allow them to pull the plug and plug something that they're doing um, that they'd like us to pay attention to, something they've done, something they're doing. Um, and in exchange, they also have to plug something else that's not theirs um, that they're really excited about that they want us all to check out. So um, uh, we'll start with Lauren. What What is it that you're working on and what is it that you really want to make sure other people pay attention to? Well, uh, I'm, of course, always working on our show, Pseudo Intellectual, with Blaze TV. You can find us on YouTube, Blaze TV, uh, audio podcast platforms. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play. Uh, I'm also editor at EV Magazine, which is an online women's publication. We talk about relationship stuff, culture stuff. It's fun girl talk, if you're into that. And as something that I think you should pay attention to, go see The Invisible Man. It's really good. I had no idea what I was going into. Didn't see the original. I think it may be a book. I don't even know. But it's it's good. Go see it. You're going to enjoy it. And um, yeah, it, it scared me a little bit. But overall, I think I think it's worth a watch. Got a nod from John too, right? Uh, yeah, it was better than I expected it to be. <laughs> <laughs> what you got for us? Uh, well, uh, the, of my own, I'll plug my show, The Damage Report, which uh, I started to be the answer to the question, what if MSNBC really wanted to have a progressive show? And what if they put all the resources into bringing on the sort of people that literally never get on to cable news? Like, if we're going to talk about minimum wage, how about we have someone on who makes it? You know, that would be novel. Why don't we bring on the primary challengers that will literally never be on Rachel Maddow so that it's not an inevitable thing that they can't beat these well-funded incumbents? And so I've been doing that and bringing on activists, people who uh, run organizations that people can get involved in, academics, uh, all of that. So that's the Damage Report. It's available um, virtually everywhere. Um, 
Uh, I will say the, uh, Invisible Man was good. Um, if you're not watching the show, I didn't know that this could be this broad, but the show The Outsider uh, on HBO is absolutely incredible, a Stephen King show. Um, but I will say, uh, for something in my field, um, go check out the Benjamin Dixon show. He was a, he, he does a progressive news show online, too. He was on my show today. Um, I think second to Elizabeth Warren, he did the most to take down Mike Bloomberg in this. He unearthed the, uh, the Xerox... Uh, thing about stop and frisk, and he found a whole bunch of what Mike Bloomberg has said and done, and, and made it national news, and uh, that had a huge impact on this primary. So the Benjamin Dixon show, check it out. Two plugs, very generous of you, Matthew. All right. Um, well, I have a podcast called Theory of Change that actually is trying to look at how the world changes and looks at the things from a much bigger, like sort of fifty thousand perspective feet perspective. Um, and so I'm talking to people in uh, who, are, who are actually looking at, let's say, political science trends, um, sociology. Um, I interviewed a, a guy from a very interesting project. I'll segue right into my plug for somebody else. Um, I, I've got to publish the episode, but uh, he's working on a um, there, a phone that is an alternative to the a- Apple and Google monopolies out there, and uh, it's extremely early for their for their project right now. But basically, they're trying to create an open source phone system uh, where anybody can look at the code and understand exactly what it does. I assume you have the skill. Um, not me. <laughs> but it's but it's not phoning home and saying, "Oh, you know, this person looked at this website here today," or "Here's their email." This is you know the random. Advertising, you can send them. Um, so it, it's called the uh, Pine Phone. It's, it, it's a in- very interesting project. And um, I'm a gadget if nerd. You, it, I'll if, look into that. Yeah, don't don't buy it yet. But uh, once they come out with the final version, uh, oh, it's so worth no, checking out. Not an early adopter. Uh, yeah, you're you're not nerdy enough. I'm yet. not an early adopter at all. My my the thing I'm going to plug for somebody else. I, I'm so late to the game. But Sex Education, since people are talking about TV, have you seen Sex Education on Netflix? No, I. I kept seeing that pop up and I didn't know what it was. It's, <laughs> I was it's afraid to click it. Absolutely brilliant. And it's not, I mean, it's it's kind of I mean, it's kind of graphic, but it's teenager. <laughs> it's not dirty, it's not porn or anything. It's but it's it's kind of the the person who wrote it really did an incredible job of getting into the mind of a teenager, getting going through this curious period in life. And as a parent of a son who is not yet old enough for that, thank God. <laughs> I have been fascinated by it, but it's hilarious, too. So sex education is the thing that I'm going to plug for something else. If you've got Netflix, definitely check it out. I've binged the whole thing in a weekend. Lauren Chin, John Iderola, Matthew Sheffield, give them a round of applause. Thank you so much. Thank you all very much, too. Follow at Politicon on all social media. And go to Politicon.com for information on how to reserve your seat to see how the heck live. If you've got a question for us on Politicon's How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along, come to a show. Or if you can't make it, email us at podcast at Politicon.com. Subscribe to Politicon's How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you can hear me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night. 
starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on.